Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do every other week. And today, these high seas have come ashore in my own country, Colombia. A hurricane in the shape of an unprecedented election cycle, which has completely upended our record of continuity and center-right politics. And this election has consequences for Latin America and beyond. The United States has long considered Colombia its most important and stable ally in the region. President Biden even described the country as the keystone of democracy in the hemisphere. Well, we will have a conversation with Miguel Silva, advisor, author, lawyer, former secretary general of the presidency, a cabinet level position. Miguel is Peter's longtime brother in arms and our very good friend. And we'll talk to him about recent events, the results of the election and what is to come in the country and in the region. Muni, I, I know you know, and but I just I just want to clarify for uh, a lot of our listeners that, uh, you know, I wasn't born in Colombia. I'm not Colombian, but it feels a little bit like my own country. I've worked there and visited for decades where I've made such great friends, beginning with our guest today. I, I, I think I've counted over 100 trips to Colombia. I've counted the stamps one time on the passports. And, you know, it's the country of 100 years of solitude or of encanto, depending on which generation you're in. It's the land where you see the worst and the best of Latin America, the most beautiful landscapes, the most welcoming people, heartbreaking violence, staggering inequality. It's it's the land of yin and yang. And for the past few weeks, a new poster child has arisen in the world because now it's also the land of crazy politics. To summarize, Colombia held elections recently, largely peaceful, free, and fair. And the winner was Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla congressman and mayor, and this is the first time that the left will rule in this democracy of 50 million people, historically conservative people who have now expressed a deep, deep desire for change. Petro, who is controversial to say the, the very least, narrowly beat a rich, super eccentric populist who ran from the right and excited his voter with an anti-corruption platform. So there were tons of headlines around the world after Petro's victory, and they all read something like Colombia braces for historic change or historic election in Colombia, a new pink tide in Latin America, which was like half hope and half uneasiness about the next four years, which is how many Colombians feel. Hope largely came from young voters and uneasiness from... I mean, we can count the establishment, business leaders, oil companies, private in investors, the U.S., some foreign governments, and many who lived under his tenure as mayor of Bogota. His promises of radical transformation in Colombia's political economic model, including taxing big landowners, halting oil exploration, reviving relations with Venezuela, point to a totally different relation, totally different direction for this trade and investment longtime U.S. ally. So we'll talk about the prospects and the risks for Colombia with our guest. But first, let's hear from Thea about these young voters who overwhelmingly put Petro in power. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Gustavo Petro's ascent has, in no small part, been propelled by the biggest, loudest, and possibly angriest youth electorate in Colombia's history, demanding the transformation of a country that's long been 
plagued by deep social and racial inequalities. And there are now nearly 9 million voters in Colombia that are 28 or younger, which is the largest in history, and it's a quarter of the electorate. And they're raised on promises of higher education and good jobs and disillusioned by current prospects, more digitally connected and arguably more empowered than any previous generation. And today's younger generation is the most educated in Colombian history, but at the same time, it's also grappling with 10% annual inflation, 20% youth employment, and 40% poverty rate. And they were very clear about their opinions on this election. In a poll that was conducted in May before the elections, more than 53% of voters 18 to 24 and about 45% of voters 25 to 34 said that they were planning to vote for Petro. And another reason Petro has done so well with the youth is his running mate, Francia Marquez. The Afro-Colombian activist connects to the young people, especially in big cities, though she is herself from a poor region and of African descent. And she's a known activist who in 2018 won the Goldman Environmental Prize, a prestigious global award for grassroots activism for her successful campaigning that she's been doing. So here's my take. Young voters were fed up with broken promises, a bad economic situation, and lack of opportunities. They're shouting and screaming for change. And the problem, of course, is too complex to solve for one man who's promising change. But the illusion is certainly comforting for the millions of youth who are part of 20% youth unemployment or 40% poverty rate. So how important is the young vote in elections around the world? Tweet it out to my podcast and let me know. Taya, youth involvement is exciting and now becomes an enormous challenge for Petro himself because he's now accountable to this generation of young people who has absolutely no qualms in turning their support back into the street for protest, as we've seen around the region over and over again with young people in other parts of Latin America. The question with Petro's radical change agenda is how far he can actually go in making his promises into reality. Colombia has strong institutions, and he still needs to engage not only with his voters, but he still needs to engage with Congress, with a thriving press, with the judicial system, and opposition parties. And part of the current uncertainty is whether Petro will move to the center of after being elected. If you look carefully at another popular politician, Mexico's AMLO, you get the distinctive feeling that the deeply anti-private sector rhetoric and populist policies could actually serve Petro very well. It's interesting because the voters were demanding change on any side, so it was not super ideological, and they got change. Colombia now stands with the leaders on the left in Latin America, like AMLO that you mentioned, like Chile's Boric, but also Peru, Honduras, and possibly Brazil if the voters re-elect Lula da Silva, which seems very likely right now. So what would this mean for Colombia, for the U.S., for the region? There's a lot of uncertainty, many, many question marks. Okay, time to say hola to Miguel Silva, the founder of Galileo 6, a strategic communications crisis and political communications firm. In the 1990s, he was chief of staff to the president of Colombia when Pablo Escobar's reign of violence was finally put to an end. And since then, he's had other very senior positions, including being the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone magazine in Latin America, founder of Gato Pardo, a monthly news magazine that was terrifically successful, and then founding two successful 
multiple communications firms where he worked on multiple campaigns and communication strategies. Miguel is an internationally recognized expert in Latin American politics. His advice on building relationships and dealing with crisis is sought after by leaders and international institutions across the world. He is more importantly my dearest friend and a friend to our entire team. Welcome Miguel Silva to Altamar. Thank you, Peter and Muni. Great to be with you. So, Miguel, let's let's get right to the point. Muni and I have tried to introduce the issue, but let me ask you bluntly: Will Petro succeed in generating the change that he has raised such large expectations about? What are the next four years going to look like? Well, first of all, let me say that change has already happened. I mean, having Petro, Mr. Petro, former guerrilla member of the guerrilla group M19. And, and a guy who's been in mainstream politics, but from the from the left as president is a change. But also having Francia Marquez, the first Afro-American woman to be vice president of the Republic, that's major change. Now, to talk about uh, real change in society and, you know, moving forward into a more equal and just society, it's going to be hard for Petro for many reasons. And one of them is the big economic restrictions that today's the current situation of Colombia uh, involves. Also, he will govern with a coalition. And that means that when he moves uh, mainstream and to a more moderate position, his uh, partners at the extreme left are going to be angry. And if he moves to the extreme left, his capability of governing is going to diminish. And so what do you see as the main challenge that he will have to face in this very difficult world that we live in, where everybody lives in, which is, you know, almost recessionary, certainly inflationary, uh, food problems, price problems. What, what, uh, what is Petro's problem, main challenge going to be? Well, I think the main challenge is, you know, converting populism, which is a way of doing campaigns, into real policy. And policy that will not scare everyone out of the country. You know, he has given a, a message of moderation. You could have said, Petro might be a radical president or a moderate president. My bet is that he's going to be a moderate president as long as he can. Uh, and then I think sooner rather than later, he's going to be a more radical president because he is pretty radical himself. You almost answered the question, but I mean, is he going to veer to the center in order to govern? And... Does that mean that a lot of his promises, for example, no, no more oil drilling or improvements with Venezuela, especially on taxes and pensions, how does he square that circle of all the promises? That's a big question. And I think that the way to see this is some of these campaign promises are only campaign promises. He will not, not stop oil production or exploration. That, that, that's not going to happen. And he already said that this is a transition thing, that nothing will happen in the short term. And that, as a matter of fact, Colombia might export more coal during his four years uh, of government than before. So, I mean, he, he already said that he's not going to do that. But I think uh, the real proof comes when he moves into the pension funds and the tax reform. Because those two have big red lines for members of his coalition, those that build the majority which are a bunch of conservatives and a bunch of liberals, all traditional politicians. They do have some red lines there. And so I think that uh, pension fund reform is gonna be tricky for Petro, but thank God, because I think he's, he's wrong on what he wants to do there. 
he wants to do the Kirchner approach uh, to just, you know, stealing the money from private pension funds uh, or moving it for the public uh, spending program. Uh, but then tax reform, I think, is critical because he does need to bring more money to the table. Deficit is pretty high. Spending, social spending is going to grow up. It's already very high up. Uh, so that's where he will need all his governing capabilities, and and he needs to push the coalition to a more leftist tax reform, which is not going to be easy. But I think that's going to be the litmus test for Petro. So about the coalition, he's to, he has already received some support in in uh, in congressional groups in the Liberal Party, Cesar Gaviria, that allow him to have a larger mandate than many people thought. What is the role of Congress? When we talk to business people, we say, oh, well, there's checks and balances in Colombia still. He's not going to be able to govern by decree. This is a really kind of sturdy democracy. But what is the role of Congress? Obviously, in the, in the tax reform, obviously, in the pension reform, it plays a very important role. But is there an actually a, a, a an expectation that it's going to be a check and balance or just a place where uh, where reforms come to die? Well, no, I think I think reforms will pass because, you know, Congress has, I mean, there's a part of this coalition that's in there for ideological, with, with ideological uh, agreements and part of this coalition that's been built just with money and bureaucratic promises. You know, once a, a candidate I worked for had a great line saying that, you know, when you're doing great, when the evil guys call you up and want to join your campaign. Well, Petro's campaign was joined by the evil guys very early on in this campaign. And the guy who's going to be the president of the Congress is an old time politician. He worked with Uribe, he worked with Santos, he's worked with everyone. Uh, but I think, I think that a president that has a majority in Congress can move his reforms forcefully. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, sound uh, reforms without losing their nature. Uh, I think that's going to be the case with Petro. The other side of your question is, is, I think, more interesting. Would that Congress and such a fragmented opposition be able to stop the president when he does crazy things? And I think my answer is no. I don't think the Congress will be the obstacle. I think that the big check and balance is going to be the people and it's going to be the constitutional court. Um, and I mean re-election, and I mean staying in power forever. This election was largely about change, but it was also about the um, fatigue with corruption. It was a very big issue, but both candidates in the, in the final round had allegations on their back, and voter polls indicated that it was the biggest concern behind security and jobs. So it's obviously a priority. How can this ill be addressed successfully by a president whose alliance... Uh, alliances, and you already mentioned this, are so controversial. Yeah, that's a that's a big question. You know, Petro hasn't been, um, you know, even you know the last discussion in, the, in our the previous campaign about Petro was a video when he was you know counting money being received in a bag. So Petro doesn't come to the campaign to this campaign and to this uh, government as a guy who's uh, pure and and you know not surrounded by corrupt uh, people. He has been surrounded by corrupt people in the previous uh, lives. And now uh, to get into power, he, he got help from a number of, you know, well-known well traditional politicians, 
some of them associated with corruption, but he has promised to attack corruption. And I think that when, when I listen to today's Petro, which sounds so different than yesterday's Petro, he's now moderate, he's a statesman. I see someone who wants to go into history as a statesman, as someone who brought social democracy into Colombia, not someone who brought old, uh, unsuccessful Chavismo to Colombia. So I am I'm hopeful that he might be someone hard with corruption. I'm, I'm sure that Francia will be. Francia comes from a different side of life. Francia hasn't been there forever. She's, an, she's a social leader. She's, uh, you know, she comes from a very humble origin. She was never in the guerrillas. She's entirely anti-corruption in her you know, essence and nature. So I think that the dynamics between those two uh, and between the different fragments of our left uh, are going to be an interesting force against corruption. But it's, it's, it's going to be challenging, challenging because exactly of what you said, the coalition is already full of them. You know, all the Klingons are already there. So let's talk about the right and center right, which has been, we've, we're also used to the right and center right governing Colombia for decades. It is, has largely made the country one of the most stable econo economic models, one of the longest standing democracy, if not the most, uh, if not the longest in the region. But for some reason, this model failed to address inequality. And this is what uh, drove this desire for change. And there's, you know, poverty, lack of opportunities that are, are really becoming unbearable. And why did the system fail so many Colombians and became such a macroeconomic kind of poster child? Well, you, you, could, you could argue that, that it was not only that the system failed, but that anger was fueled by social media also. I mean, if you look at Chile, where they were so successful in social change and economic growth, and even though they had a very angry population saying we've done nothing, which is not true. They've done a lot. It's also not true in Colombia. Colombia has done a lot. It has succeeded in many, many different areas. Um, you know, health and housing and uh, I mean, education. We've we've completely changed in the last 40 years. But of course, poverty is a big issue. Inequality is a big issue. And the COVID-19 the way we handled COVID-19, the way we, we did this huge, dramatic lockdown, which might have helped to uh, save some lives, but it, it, it sent 4 million Colombians back to poverty. So there's, there's huge anger in Colombia. You have 22 million Colombians out of 55 in poverty. Six of them, 6 million of them live with, that, with less than a dollar a day. And the other, uh, whatever, uh, live with less than $90 a month. I mean, that is, that is, a, that is a horrifying number. And I think that, that should be the priority of everyone from now on. I think that also uh, this idea that, you know, just economic growth would trickle down and, you know, benefit the rest of the economy just wasn't true. It, it, needs, it needs some help. And I'm not an economist, so I don't know what the solution is. But it's clear that that, that, that idea failed miserably in, in bringing a, a, a more fair system to most of the people. So Miguel, I want, I want to take it to young voters. They overwhelmingly voted for Petro and his running mate, activist Francia Marquez. What's the takeaway here and what are the youth's expectations for this new administration? Well, it's interesting because the, the, the young voted uh, not only in favor of Petro, they also voted for the 
our crazy Trumpian candidate, uh, the engineer, uh, Hernandez. And uh, if you look at the first vote, the first round was 20 million votes. 16 million votes were anti-establishment votes. And, and the engineer, Hernandez, outchanged Petro. Actually, in the second round, Petro was like a member of the establishment, where, whereas Rodolfo was like the, you know, the, the underdog, you know. He was the anti-establishment guy. So, so the young want change. They don't want to see the same thing they've seen forever. I mean, someone who's 20 or 25, they have seen Uribe's, uh, former President Uribe's um, and former President Santos govern in the last, you know, all their, what they have as democratic life. And, and people are, are, you know, tired of this. They want they want real change. They want they want a they want a stronger look at environmental issues. They want a they want a tougher stance on climate. They want they want true paths against corruption. They want real uh, policies uh, for inequality. And 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 so you know you the two candidates who were promising exactly that uh, uh, got the majority of the vote. Our friends from the center. Uh, and, you know, I think the center had eight guys who could have been great presidents in any country. Great presidents. Uh, and I won't name them. You, I mean, you know, all those names. And, you know, someone like Fajardo, who was, Sergio Fajardo was, you know, mayor of Medellin, governor of Antioquia, professor, a university teacher, a decent guy. He got 4% of the vote. The center in my country committed suicide. And, and, and the center needs particularly the center to left, needs to know, go back to the drawing board and understand why their message is not, it's not going through. And it's not only because of social media. Of course, that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is they don't look courageous enough. And Petra and Hernandez did look courageous. Miguel, let's move to um, international relations issues and and you know, for the United States, which has been, which has considered Colombia the closest ally in Latin America for so many years, since certainly since Plan Colombia uh, decades ago, now has a very different president in charge in Latin, in Colombia. What do you think the relations are going to be between the United States, particularly with? Uh, Biden, but also with a potential new Republican Congress after November. Well, you know, you've heard me talk about this, uh, Peter. Uh, in the absence of a strategy from the United States towards Latin America, our relationships are managed by the agencies. And so poor Colombia is managed by its relationship with the DA. So it's all about drugs. That has to change. I mean, it should change. We have an old relationship. We have a an old friendship. It should be a richer conversation, not such a you know psychotic conversation about drugs, and and it should be driven by a bigger, you know, a bigger and common purpose. Now, I think that it, that's hard to do with Petro, because I think Petro will be naturally aligned with Venezuela and Cuba, and will naturally be aligned with Russia, and I think that uh, the U.S. has to you know have a better game in, in preventing that from happening with a better offer. Not a, not a stronger punishment, but a better character. And I don't see the U.S. looking at Latin America at all. I, I, I don't see 
the U.S. worried about Latin America, and Latin America is moving away from the U.S. I, I certainly agree with that. And so I guess the next question is, what about Colombia's future relations with China? You know, there are many countries in Latin, in other other countries in Latin America that have become that have become very close with China, and certainly largest trading partner, often largest investor. Colombia hasn't because of its relationship with the United States. But is that going to change now? Is Colombia going to open up more to Chinese investments? Well, the Chinese haven't been very interested in Colombia. I mean, they they are now building the Bogota Metro, and they've offered some financiation for ports and coal and but they haven't been that uh, interested there has been some russian activity which i don't know if it's true or not there were some russians who were expelled uh, from colombia that they were accused of doing ex ex espionage um, i don't know if that's the case uh, but i i do think that they do understand because they do approach latin america in a more strategic way and in a more proactive way than the U.S. The U.S. just takes us for granted. The Chinese know there's an opportunity there and the Russians understand that too. So I think that with someone like Petro and given all the, you know, all the common, uh, the, the open channels that will be there, I think there's a possibility that we're going to move towards uh, those other axes of international power. Petro is someone who's, who has been very close with France, and there might be a possibility of, you know, strengthening ties with the European Union, which would be an interesting uh, uh, movement in our in our international foreign policy. Yeah, one question I uh, meant to ask you earlier was the negotiations with the ELN, which is uh, a guerrilla group that is still uh, has not been brought in under the peace negotiations. What are your views about peace with this group, particularly because this group is so strongly linked to organized crime and drug trafficking and, and terrorist acts? Well, that was the case with M19 before them in the 1980s, not narco-trafficking, but you know, terrorism, certainly, uh, and the FARC, which was deeply involved in narco-trafficking. So uh, that shouldn't be a, a problem. I mean, that's always a problem, but that, that shouldn't be a, a deterrent for someone to, you know, look for peace with a, you know, with a guerrilla group. Uh, I think the problem with the ELN is that they're very small and they want too much. Um, it's also, I think, hard to negotiate with the ELN because what they want, what they've always wanted is a, you know, a national dialogue um, on, on different issues. Having said that, the biggest obstacle is that uh, the ELN has asked for stopping uh, the production, exploration, and, and, and exports of uh, oil and coal. And Petro promised that that would happen, but he has now said that it won't happen during his administration. So I think that that's going to be tricky. But, you know, all in all, we all know how those things work. Uh, he has appointed Alvaro Leiva Duran, a former senator, 79 years old, who has always been, you know, the FARC's best friend. When I was a journalist and I needed to talk to the FARC when they were a guerrilla group, I would ask Leiva and he would take me to a little house in a neighborhood in Bogota. And there was a guy in a wheelchair who had a radio and we would speak with the guerrilla commanders. And so, you know, he has always been the, the link with the FARC. And he he understands Cuba well. Cuba and the ELN are uh, you know closely tied. They have clo very close ties. So I think that things you could you could 
imagine that that is something that might happen, the, the negotiations with the ALN. What does that mean in the end? Not a lot. There are 2,000 2, men in arms, uh, and I think most of the violence now is not coming from them, but from the dissidents of the FARC who are better equipped and, and, and they have uh, huge access to narco-trafficking resources. They both, FARC dissidences and the ELN, are backed by Venezuela today. So it's a very intricate thing. So let's talk a little bit about the region and just kind of take a step back. Colombia is now a brand new member of the team of these left-wing governments um, in the region that have been coming into power one after the other. And we're expecting Lula probably to be the next member. What are some of the implications of this regional tide, you call it whatever, a pendulum, it's been called many things, the pink tide, etc. And then in general, and this is kind of our, our, our last question of, of the day, are you worried for Colombia or excited for all of this change and upheaval? <laughs> so I, I think, you know, the, 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 the Latin American left is like the animal farm, right? All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. You know, you, can, you cannot say that Castillo, Ortega, uh, the Cuban, uh, I don't remember his name, Miguel something, and, uh, and um, Alberto Fernandez and Boric and Lula and Petro are the same thing. You know, you could, you, could, you could organize like three different bags. They all come from different places of the zoo and, and, and you cannot add them back. I do think from what I've read from Petro's statements uh, these, this week, that I, that I think he wants to become a Latin American leader of a big social democratic movement. And I think he's going to abandon the, uh, the Chavista language. Uh, and, and if you look at his words, his words are now different. You know, he's refounding capitalism and he, he wants to take the society out of the feudal, blah, blah, blah. And it's a completely different language than, than Chavez. Uh, in, interesting. So, so I don't know. I think I think it's going to be uh, disturbing for the U.S. Uh, but if the U.S. understands how to, you know, cherry pick there and has a strategy, has a better strategy and a, and, a, and, a, and a richer dialogue with Colombia and Brazil, I think it can, you know, let Castillo and Ortega do their thing and and and, and well, who cares? Uh, but but keep keep Colombia and Brazil closer to home, right? Excited or worried? Uh, you know, with Colombia, Borges used to say in a short story, someone asked, uh, uh, called Ulrica, they ask a professor of the University of Los Andes, what is to be a Colombian? And he answers, it's an act of faith. And, you know, we're used to, <laughs> as, you, as you well know, Muni, uh, we are used to be both worried and excited. We're always in, in a state of horrible fear for our country and always excited because our country is full of energy and change and Things always happen, and you know it's a very resilient country. I, I hate that word, but it is, and and I think we'll we'll be okay. Miguel Silva, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar with this great conversation. Thank you, Muni and Peter. Great to be with you.
So, Moni, let's ask the same question to you that you asked to Miguel, which is, are you worried or excited? Well, I would like to say something very diplomatic, like I'm cautiously optimistic, but frankly, I'm worried. I, I think that any president that would come into power right now in Colombia has a really tough agenda to to tackle in, in the economy, in the, in the social unrest, in the, the degree of kind of... Um, unhappiness from from the Colombian voters from the left and the right and and I think he's got a big job ahead of him I, I worry about his temperament I worry about having this kind of very different um, team as kind of a bi bipolar team that he's going to end up building and and how that will go it's going to require a lot of leadership and it's going to require a lot of um, forgiveness and uh, optimism on the part of his of, of his team well I, I think you've said very much what I think, but I, mostly my my concern is that being president of any country, any country in this moment in the world, facing recession, facing inflation, war in Ukraine, and sort of food shortages, I just think are, is a very, very tough uh, thing to take on, particularly after three years of COVID in which, as Miguel well said, so many people went backwards into poverty. So we've got to end it there. You can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time.